0: 42, and um, and I want to be honest with you this morning and tell you that this is both probably one of the most exciting passages that we have looked at in the story of Joseph to this point, and also, for me, for some reason, has been one of the most complex and difficult and challenging to work through. And I've thought of a number of possible reasons as to why that might be the case for me. It's an exciting part of the story, so why is it so difficult? And um, And I've come up with... A number, of, a number of ideas, but I'm wondering if there might be two that actually have some play here for us this morning, and one is because this is a message that I so personally need, and so it's kind of difficult for me because I need the message that I'm about to share with you, and the second possibility might be that maybe you're in the same boat. Maybe you too need this in a unique and special way, and so I want us to pray this morning before we dive in, and I'd like us just to really genuinely ask God to interact with us here. This prayer is not a, uh, a stall so that I don't have to get to the message. This is an opportunity to interact with the God whose word we will here investigate, whose spirit is present among us, and who we can implore to speak to us this morning from Genesis chapter 42. So, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that what you said is true, that your Holy Spirit is here, present among us, right now. We've all read Genesis 42, I suspect, in the past. We've thought about it, we've contemplated it, We know the story, but there's something more here for us that I believe your Holy Spirit wants us to experience today and in the days to come. Would you by your Holy Spirit do what no words, however eloquent, might ever be able to do? And would you speak beyond our ears to our hearts this morning? And I'm praying that personally, Father, Would you speak to me? Because this morning, I come in need of the gospel. We come in need of the gospel. Speak, we pray, by your word, by your Holy Spirit, we pray. Genesis chapter 42, if you want to open your Bible there. You'll remember, perhaps, where we were last week as we discussed the life of Joseph. We talked about his two sons and the amazing testimony of thanksgiving that Joseph demonstrated in the land of Egypt, far from his home, long time in slavery, and now finally exalted to a position of power. These two sons are born to him. Do you remember their names? Ephraim and Manasseh. It was actually the reverse order, but we, why do we say In fact, we're going to get to that later on in the story of Joseph. We normally say it, Ephraim and Manasseh, right? And there's a reason. Anyone remember the reason why? We haven't studied it yet, so this is pop quiz. General Bible knowledge. It's because later on in this same book, Genesis, Jacob actually blessed the boys and reversed their order. He deliberately crossed his hands when he blessed them. And we'll talk about why he did that. That's coming. That's that's for the future. But he had two boys, right? They were Ephraim and Manasseh. Really, by birth order, Manasseh and Ephraim. Their names had special meanings. God has made me forget all my affliction and my father's house, Manasseh. And God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction, Ephraim. What a place for thanksgiving. What an opportunity for praise. Not because the story was finished. The last chapter had been written. The end was across the final page. But because Joseph, in the middle of his experience, could look at his experience and see not just the suffering, not just the affliction, but the very hand of God himself. That's the end of chapter 41. And then it says in chapter 41, verse 53, the seven years of plenty that occurred... In the land of Egypt came to an end. So we know about how old Joseph is at this point in time. How old would he be? Seven years of plenty. He came before, before Pharaoh, excuse me. He came before Pharaoh at the age of 30. He said, "Your dream means that there will be seven years of plenty, followed by seven years of famine." So he's now 37 years old, right? And it's probably a little bit later than that by the time that chapter 42 opens. Because in chapter 42, the famine has now spread across all of the land. It's even extended clear out into the land of Canaan, where Joseph came from. So that his family is experiencing the famine as well as the land of Egypt. This famine is now spread out across the whole region. And all these people, the Egyptians, as well as the people in the outlying areas, were all affected by the famine. And that's the opening of the story but it's only the beginning. Really, this is a story about the difference between guilty darkness and gospel light. We're going to watch as Joseph makes this first connection with his brothers. I'm going to tell you the end of the story first. He makes this first connection with his brothers, and they respond in a very different way to affliction and suffering and hardship than Joseph did. And I want to ask the question, why? Why were they so very different in their response to hardship, in their response to affliction, in their response to the hand of God than was Joseph. So hold on to that question because we're going to be walking through the reasons for that as the gospel applies. But I want to tell you at the very outset that we say the gospel and we kind of think that's how I came from darkness to light. And you're right. That is the only way that you can move from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God. The gospel, the good news of Jesus, the good news of what God has done by grace through him is the only way to transfer from darkness to light. The only path. But we tend to relegate it to being just that moment in time at which I first believed and came to Christ. But can I tell you this morning that no one, ever, graduates from the gospel. No one ever graduates from the gospel. I need the gospel today as much as I needed it that day many, many years ago when I first believed. And you do too. We can't live the life that we've been called to live any more apart from Jesus now than we could before we knew Jesus. We, we get this confusion in our minds thinking that justification, the process by which we're transferred from darkness to light, by which we're made righteous in the sight of God, is the part of our experience that is affected by the gospel. It is affected by the gospel, but sanctification, the process by which we grow in grace, is no less a transformation process by the gospel. We must have the gospel. And it gets really practical. We're going to watch it, just how practical it gets this morning. But that's the proposition. So proposition this morning, no one ever graduates from the gospel. You are not going to leave the gospel behind in your pilgrimage through this life and say, that was kind of the baby stuff, and now I'm on to the really big stuff. No, no, that is the big stuff. The gospel, your experience of Jesus on a daily basis, your understanding and growth in his grace is what this life is all about. So let's look at Genesis chapter 42. The first thing we see as we consider the opening of this chapter, we read in verse 1, it says, Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt. He said to his sons, why do you look at one another? In other words, why aren't you doing something about this? And he said, Behold, I have heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there, that we may live and not die. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. Verse 4, but Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came, for the famine was in the land of Canaan and Joseph was governor over all the land of Egypt. He was the one who sold to the people of the land. Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. We see chapter 42 open. We've already identified how old Joseph is. He's about probably 38 years old. We know he's at least 37, and he's and we know he's not more than 39 because later on we find out that it was two years into the famine, and that was already passed after they had left Simeon for some time in prison. Gracious boys that they were. And and so we know he's probably about 38 years old. So that, do some math with me. I'm not real good at math, but I've done it ahead of time so I can just memorize it and remember it. Think of this. Joseph was how old when he was sold into slavery? 17. He's now about 38. So how many years has he been in Egypt? Twenty-one years. That's more time that he spent in a foreign land than he spent in all of his growing up years in his own home. In one sense, we could almost say that this was more his land than the land of his growing up, than the land of Canaan. This was what he knew. This is what he experienced as he had been through 21 years in a foreign land. It's no wonder that his brothers didn't recognize him. He'd started off as a young 17-year-old boy, young man, and now he's 38. Not only that, he has adopted the language. Did you notice in this chapter later on, they are using an interpreter? Not because Joseph didn't understand their language, but he was accustomed to using an interpreter. And this was a good way to keep the distance between him and his brothers, right? He used an interpreter. He spoke fluent Egyptian. He looked like an Egyptian. He came out of prison, and he shaved. He looked like an Egyptian. I don't know exactly what he looked like, but it would have looked a lot like royalty. Gold chain around the neck, this very special coat that he wore. If they ever saw him in his chariot, which they probably didn't at this point in time, it would have been definitely like, oh yeah, this man is about as close to royalty as you get. There was no idea in their minds that this Joseph that they actually assumed was dead, we'll see later on in this chapter, that there was any possibility that Joseph could be the one that's standing before them. But I want you to think about the patience that's involved in this as Joseph waits for his brothers to come. Think about this. Joseph probably, very likely, had the only other chariot in the whole land of Egypt. So there was Pharaoh's chariot and there was Joseph's chariot. He had transportation, guys. His brothers made the trek, probably on some kind of an animal, maybe camels, to Egypt. Couldn't he have done that in seven to eight years of being in power? Now, he'd been enslaved for a long time, right? So he'd been in slavery for a lot of those years. But the last seven to eight years, he wasn't. He never went to see them. He never went down and shook his finger in their face and said, uh, Just want to let you know, if you ever come to Egypt, just what you'll see. He never sent an ambassador to go tell them, Hey, guys, I'm in Egypt, and, um, you know, we're in a different place than we used to be. Try coming and bowing down. He just waited. Guys, that's a long time to wait. And we find out in this chapter, there's a lot of emotion pent up in this story that has not yet been resolved. It's not like Joseph doesn't care. It's that Joseph is very deliberately waiting. He has not made it his job to go down and settle scores with his brothers, though he could have and done a very effective job of it. He just waited. Sometimes I think that we get in a rush to help God out. We're going to try and administer the gospel on our terms. We're going to try and get the job done in our way. In fact, Joseph comes from a line that had that very firmly embedded in it. His great-grandfather, Abraham, was promised in Genesis chapter 15, in the Abrahamic covenant, you will bear a son. You'll have this son of your very own. So in Genesis chapter 16, in verse 2, we find out that he goes out to help God. Well, let's get this thing done. So, he takes, with his wife's fallacious advice, Hagar, his servant, and she bears him a son, Ishmael. And we have consequences of that decision that roll on to today. Abraham's just trying to help God out. After all, didn't God say that you'd have a son? And obviously, it's not going to be through Sarah. There's no way this is going to happen. I'll just help God out. We'll get the gospel work done. We'll get the job done moving along for God. Joseph didn't fall prey to that. He just waited. And he waited a long time, even though there was a lot of pent-up emotion and excitement about the possibility that one day the dream would actually be fulfilled. Jim read for us Habakkuk chapter 2 as one of those selections. And let me reiterate it for you. In a time of judgment... At a place of difficulty, Habakkuk writes this. And it's the voice of the Lord. Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. The righteous will live by faith. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that what Joseph was doing, In that time of waiting seven, eight years for his brothers to come, for the vision to be fulfilled was exactly what was taking place in the book of Habakkuk, as we likewise and the people to whom that particular prophecy was addressed, wait. We just wait. Because God will not lie. The dream, the vision will certainly come to pass but I get anxious about that. I get concerned about it. When is God going to make this happen? Isn't this going to ha- Couldn't it be now? Haven't we waited long enough? And when it comes to gospel purposes, it even seems righteous. Really, it does. It's not just for myself, God. I'm waiting for this person that I've prayed for and worked for and thought about and yearned for and argued with. And surely you care. Isn't this the time? And sometimes the answer is to just wait. But notice that the waiting is not just a passivity on Joseph's part. He's anything but passive in this waiting process. He's actively involved in working together with God, but he's willing to wait for God to bring his purposes to pass in his time. So it doesn't mean just sit back and say, well... Que sera, sera. Whatever will be, will be. Whenever it happens, it happens. God is in charge. I'm a fatalist. I just let it happen. No, Joseph was actively working together with God. How could he be so patient? Because he was absolutely certain that God would do what he said he would do. It was the same way he managed to wait so long in prison. How did he wait so long? How did he not just give up? How did he not just surrender his will to live in such a dire circumstance? And the answer, he was absolutely certain that God would do what he said he would do. How certain are you? It reflects in our patience, in our ability to wait. The story is told of George Mueller who prayed for many, many years for a person to be saved. Remember George Mueller? George Mueller, the uh, 18th century British one-time rebel who started these orphanages. And he waited on God. He was known as a man of prayer. And so he would wait on God for specific supplies. And he would, uh, and he'd see remarkable answers at just the right moment. They were praying one time for food and they had run out of food. And after all, God, don't you care about these orphans? And he just prayed and There was a knock on the door, and there was the food. God answered him lots of times that way, but you know, when he prayed for at least this one person for years and years, he died without seeing that person come to Christ. He just waited, and he never saw it come to pass. But God was still at work. It was after his death, as I recall, that this person came to salvation, Jesus. God's time's not always our time. Gospel patience says, I can wait because I'm absolutely confident that God will do what he said he would do. I want to introduce you to the gospel argument that we hear beginning in verse 6. You see the brothers bowing down before Joseph. There's the partial fulfillment, the second partial fulfillment of the dream. You remember the first partial fulfillment was when Joseph's Sheaf stood up, right? So he's before Pharaoh. He's exalted to a high position, and in one sense, his sheaf stands up among his brethren. He's singled out for singular service and for specific uh, duty in an honorable place. This is the next part, when the brothers fall down, but it's not complete yet. Why was the dream not yet complete? Benjamin wasn't there. Benjamin wasn't there yet. And you'll hear Joseph arguing for Benjamin to come. It's very important that Benjamin come for a variety of reasons. This is one of them. The dream was not yet fulfilled. Joseph knew it would come to pass. But here we see that the dream is partially fulfilled. As the brothers bowed down, Joseph saw his brothers. He recognized them, verse 7. But he treated them like strangers and spoke roughly to them. This is what he said. Where do you come from? They said, through an interpreter, they said, from the land of Canaan to buy food. And Joseph recognized his brothers, but they did not recognize him. And Joseph, Joseph remembered the dreams that he had dreamed of them. And listen to what he says. You're spies. You've come to see the nakedness of the land. One commentator suggests that this was not so much to see the results of the ravaging famine on the land, but there was an unprotected border, an eastern border that was frequently attacked by marauding Asiatics. And so it was like, you've come to see our weaknesses. You've come to check us out and find out where our defenses are not as strong. Perhaps also to see what the effects of the famine are on the land of Egypt, the great superpower of the day. They said to him, verse 10, no, my Lord. Now listen to their argument. (laughs) Your servants, oh, your servants, yeah, okay, your servants have come to buy food. We're all the sons of one man. We're honest men. Hello? Your servants have never been spies. At least that part was true. Your servants are... Honest men, straight, they're above suspicion, really. And they're telling this to Joseph, who knew, from personal experience at their hands, what they were really like. They were really saying this, look guys, we're just a hungry family, can't you feed a hungry family? We're not spies, we're just honest. Joseph continues the test. And he says, No, you've come to see the weakness, the nakedness of the land. Verse 13. We, your servants... Now listen, they have to develop their alibi further, right? Because, because it's not enough. We've got to give him some details to say, We really do know what we're talking about. We, we really understand. We, we're, making, we're not making the story up. So they say this. We, your servants, are twelve brothers... The sons of one man in the land of Canaan, and behold, the youngest is this day with our father, and one is no more. He's dead. He's gone. The brothers actually believed, I think, at this point in time, and we'll see it further developed later, that Joseph was actually dead. And we experience that again later, where we see that they believed that his blood was still on their hands. Which, in one sense, it really was. So they spill the story without even meaning to do it. I want you to notice one important detail here. Joseph could easily have pressed his point home on that brother. He could have very simply said, when they said, and one is no more, oh really? Really? Tell me about that. How did that go down? But he didn't. Notice the gospel patience within the gospel argument as he works with these men, his brothers, for the purpose of seeing them come face to face with God. Because really what we're going to watch as we walk through Genesis 42 here is that Joseph is very specifically working together with his brothers in their strengths and weaknesses to point them to the fact that they desperately need God. It's a gospel conversation that's taking place here as he directs their attention to the only one who can give them help, who can give them hope. And it's an interesting place to be. Because he, the offended, is the very one who is ministering to the offender it's a really hard place. So Joseph is deliberately working to bring the gospel, the good news of God's grace to his brothers, because the beginning place for the gospel is always desperate need. Always. People who say that I'm not sick. You ever been around someone who says, I'm not sick. How likely are they going to go get medicine out of the cabinet or go to the doctor? Not too likely because they're saying, I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I'm not sick. They sound like they've been run over by a truck. Jesus used this very illustration in Luke chapter 5 to say, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. The best medicine in the world doesn't help and is completely ineffective to a person who refuses to take it. Joseph is bringing his brothers to the place of thinking about how much they need the medicine. He's making sure that they're really sick. Sometimes I think we want to jump start the gospel by simply saying, you can have a wonderful life in God. Is that true, by the way? Can you? Yeah but not until you're really sick. Because you won't be interested in going to the doctor. I'm not interested in going to the doctor. And by the way, this doesn't simply apply to people who are for the first time coming to Christ. How many times, how many, many times to my shame have I gone somewhere other than God to meet my need at some other place in life? Some other point where I am looking for an answer, I need some help, but I'm not quite desperate enough yet to actually ask God. You ever been there? That's where the gospel enters our experience, is at that moment that we recognize that we have a need. So Joseph drew out just enough of the family history to let its morbidity and its ugliness sink into his brother's minds. But he didn't press the point too far. He let their own subtle confession do its work to work on the hard-baked consciences of his brothers. I want you to remember just for a moment who these brothers really were. You say, well, we know they sold Joseph into slavery, and that was essentially giving him a death sentence, and they were really bad. That's not all. They were worse than that. If you trace back to Genesis chapter 34, you find that there was a time... And Joseph was present at the time that this occurred when Dinah, the only daughter among all the brothers, went out to see the daughters of the land, exactly what that means. Anyway, she went out to fraternize with her peers, perhaps, in the territory, and one of the men, whose name was Shechem, saw her and took her and raped her. That really made the brothers angry, and with good reason. And so two of them took it upon themselves to execute a vendetta, Simeon and Levi. So they went out and lied to the men of Shechem and said, tell you what, we'll, we'll do what you want. We'll give our sister to you. We'll actually begin a process of intermarrying with you under one condition. We have this, we have this uh, covenant called circumcision. And so all the males must be circumcised. So Hamor and his son Shechem thought about this. They were the ruling people in that territory. And they said... All right, I think we can do that. That sounds like a good deal. And because he longed to have Dinah, Shechem was ready to go forward with the process. And so they did. And they had the whole group of all the males in that city circumcised. And then, when they were sore, and while they felt that the city was secure, Simeon and Levi took swords and came upon the city and killed every single And then, to top it off, they plundered the city. Jacob actually said after that, he said to Simeon and Levi, you have brought trouble on me by making me stink to the inhabitants of the land. My numbers are few, and if they gather themselves against me and attack me, I shall be destroyed, both I and my household. But they said, should he treat our daughter like a prostitute, our sister like a prostitute? No remorse, whatever. Whatever. We were wronged, and so we executed our own personal style of justice. It was the Wild West in the ancient East. That remorseless, I don't care attitude was something Joseph knew very well. And he knew there were no words and no personal powers that he could bring to bear upon their consciences to change them. Could Joseph deal with them at that point? Yes, he could. He could have just said execute them all. And they would have been executed. But that wasn't his point. Joseph wasn't there to execute justice. He was there to demonstrate gospel mercy in the context of the justice of God. And so he didn't do that. And he let the Spirit work by patient tactical argument upon their consciences. By the finger of God pointing out their self-righteous proud hearts things that they would never confess in any other way. The argument continues in verse 15 of chapter 42. By this you shall be tested, said Joseph. By the life of Pharaoh you shall not go from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. He puts his finger on the one sensitive spot, the one thing that he could not have unless Benjamin comes Send one of you, and let him bring your brother while you remain confined, that your words may be tested, whether there is truth in you or else. By the life of Pharaoh, surely you are spies. And then he put him in prison for three days. Now I want you to remember, because we're about to see something change here in the text, who went to prison? All the brothers, right? All the brothers went to prison. What was his edict? You're going to go, and you're going to send one representative to get Benjamin. And all the rest of you are going to stay in prison. But Joseph changes his story in verse 18. One more testimony. Could he have justly held them in prison, by the way? Yes, he could have. It was perfectly within his power and right. He could have just had them executed, but he put them in prison. He let them struggle with the uncertainty that he himself had known, but not for days, but for years. And he says in verse 18, do this and you will live for I fear God. If you are really straight and upright men, if you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households and bring your youngest brother to me. Whoops, Joseph just switched the whole thing around. Did you catch it? He said before, you send one representative, the rest of you remain confined. He just said now, leave one representative and the rest of you go and carry grain for your households and bring back your youngest brother. Mercy against mercy against mercy. As the brothers wait in jail, in prison... They had to be left to consider their lives in this cauldron of uncertainty. Would they ever see their father? Would they ever see their families again? Would they ever leave this prison? Remember, prison in the ancient East was an uncommon thing, and it was probable that people went to prison for a life sentence. Joseph didn't tell them, You will be in prison for three days, from anything we know in the text. We know that because we look back at it, and we know that Joseph only left them there three days. They didn't know that, they didn't know that they could be there forever to never come out. Some of the drama of the story that we sometimes overlook. Why had they been singled out for such treatment? What had they done that was so terribly wrong? And it really didn't take them very long to come to a conclusion. Listen to it. In verse 21. They said, the brothers speaking to each other, not knowing that Joseph could understand them. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother, and that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. And Reuben answered them, Did I not tell you not to sin against the boy? But you did not listen, so now there comes a reckoning for his blood. This is 21 years before, guys. And it's still weighing very heavily. So much so that when given... By the way, again, we have no indication that Joseph brought anything else. But in fact, I think for the sake of the way that the argument flows, there's no way Joseph brought this to their minds. This was the work of God, who is bringing to the brothers' minds something that happened 21 years ago. They had other things they could have thought of. I'm sure Judah could have thought of his experience with Tamar. Simeon and Levi certainly could have hearkened back to the bloodthirsty hard-baked, ugly slaughter of all the males of Shechem but that's not where their minds went in this circumstance by the finger of God and by the patience of careful gospel argument their minds go back to one place Joseph oh it's Joseph, we're guilty we're guilty and Reuben is stepping up and saying didn't I tell you don't sin against the boy." And now the blood is on our hands. It was as though the blood that was on Joseph's coat refused to leave their hands that no amount of washing could cleanse them. Perhaps it was from this idea that Shakespeare took his character Macbeth, who you may remember could never wash the blood from his hands, the blood of Duncan, whom he participated in murdering. This is his words. These are his words. He said, looking at his own hands, whose hands are these? Ha, they're plucking out my eyes. With all the water in the ocean, will all the water in the ocean wash this blood from my hands? No. Instead, my hands will stain the sea's scarlet, turning the green waters red. Yeah, that's guilt. And it's what the brothers faced at this moment. They could not, by any amount of washing, get that blood, the defiling blood of Joseph's life, which, who they assumed was truly dead at this point in time. They could not wash his blood from their hands. We're guilty, they said. We saw Joseph's distress. He begged us, imagine, from the pit as Joseph, 17-year-old Joseph, is begging them, please, please don't do this. Don't sell me, don't kill me, don't leave me here. And they said, we can't hear you. We will not listen. And we don't care. Yeah, we don't care. But all of a sudden, 21 years later, they find that they do care. Because guilt has been eating into their soul bit by bit for many years long years. Think about this. Best we know from the text. They never, in 21 years, told their dad the real story. Really? In 21 years, they never confessed their sin. Never. Never. They knew it within themselves, notice it's their conversation between themselves you're hearing here, and they all knew what had happened because they were all there, except for Reuben who was on an errand at the time, but he still knew what had taken place, and they never confessed it. This that you see here is the testimony of what will happen to us when we do not deal with our guilt, with our sin in the light of gospel grace. It will eat us alive. You ever met a person who's almost incapacitated by guilt? That's what you're looking at here. Men who are almost totally overwhelmed by the guilt that they have with regard to their brother. And the brother, who they were guilty of all but killing, is standing before them. And they don't know it. And with that, I want to tell you that the gospel, when you are the minister of it, involves grief. It involves pain. Look at what Joseph says. What's said of Joseph in verse 23. They did not know, the brothers did not know, that Joseph understood them, for there was an interpreter between them. Then he turned away from them, and wept. Don't think that your participation in the gospel will be without price, especially when it involves those who offend you. But who, like you, who, like me, need the good news that God is a God of grace? A couple of years ago, in the town of Charleston, South Carolina. There was a terrible church shooting. A young man came into a Wednesday night Bible study. His name was Dylan Roof. And he sat down and spent the Bible study with the people in that church in Charleston. And he waited for them to pray. And then he unloaded his gun. What happened next is really an astonishing story. And I don't normally do this, but this morning I wanted you to hear it. So listen to what happened next. your involvement in the gospel will probably hurt. Another one of the people who suffered loss in that terrible killing said this. If at any point before you were sentenced and you want me to come and pray with you, Family, one said, that love built, and we have no room for hating. I pray God on your soul. The gospel administered in grace is painful. It's painful because we get a small chance to join Jesus in the very act of gospel grace. If you think it was painful for those who suffered loss in June of 2015 in Charleston, South Carolina, what must it have been 2,000 years ago when the rabble, and we can include ourselves, nailed Jesus to that cross? And he said, from the cross, Father, forgive They do not know what they do. We're not here to talk about forgiveness this morning. We're getting there in chapters 45 and 50. But I wanted to share that with you just so that you can understand that your involvement in the gospel is going to be costly to you. It's going to involve, yes, it probably will involve grief as you bear with those, as you minister to those. Who may even have hurt you. But it's a gospel of grace. Joseph says, Do this, going back to verse 18, and live. Do this and live. He just made them a promise, guys. Do this and live, for I fear God. I, I want you to see quickly that there's a tremendous parallel that's going on here between Joseph's own experiences and his brother's experiences. Joseph went on a journey from Shechem. From his hometown to Shechem and then from there to Dothan to find his brothers from which he was sold into slavery in Egypt. His brothers went on a journey all the way to Egypt. There was an accusation. Joseph accused of adultery with Potiphar's wife. His brothers accused of being spies to see the nakedness of the land. There was an appeal. Joseph from the pit begged us and we did not listen. The brothers... We're really just a hungry family. We're not spies. There was an imprisonment. Joseph spent, I don't know how long, but it was years. We know it was at least two because the the years from the time that he interpreted the baker and the butler's dreams until the time he stood before Pharaoh was two, and it was very likely significantly more than that before he came out of prison. The brothers, three days in prison. And for both of them, the outcome was uncertain. Would they live or die? and no one knew. But the answer, the way that they responded to those experiences, parallel as they were, by design by the way, by God's design and by Joseph's participation in God's design, the responses were very different. Joseph was enslaved but free. His brothers were free but enslaved. Joseph was uncondemned in conscience but they were tortured by guilt. And the difference was really in how they saw God. A few verses further on, and the brothers say, when they find the money in the tops of their sacks that Joseph sent back with them, they said, what is this that God has done to us? They looked only for a malevolent, hateful God who was out for their worst possible interests. Joseph saw God as his present righteousness. How then can I do this great evil and sin against God? He saw saw God as his good sovereign. God sent me here. He saw God as his great savior. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth. He saw God as his supreme blesser. God has made me lord of all Egypt. But the brothers saw him merely as an avenger, one exacting punishment for wrongdoing. That is why this distress has come upon us. So now there comes a Reckoning for his blood, what is this that God has done to us? The brothers weren't atheists. They believed in God. They just didn't see him in the light of gospel grace. Because their sins, get this, because their sins separated them from him. The net result was a fear of God without faith, a confidence in the judgment of God without any hope of mercy. They believed in God. They just didn't see him for who he really was. And that brings us to our final points this morning. How do we get out of this mess? How do we step out of the darkness of our own personal guilt? The endless spiral of our wickedness and sin. The question, can God actually forgive? And I'm going to suggest that there are really just two answers. The two things that the brothers needed. The two things that the gospel was working to produce in their lives through the instrumentation of Joseph in this chapter, chapter 42. And the first is repentance coming face-to-face with the awful reality of our sin. The brothers came that far. They saw that their sin was awful. But they didn't come far enough to believe that God could forgive them for Jesus' sake. They didn't come far enough to believe that they could forsake their selfish ways in view of God's surpassing rewards. We tend to fail in three ways on this. This matter of repentance... We fail by not recognizing our evil as really being evil. Or not even recognizing it at all. Or we believe that it just doesn't seem possible that God could actually forgive us for our sin. C.J. Mahaney in his little book titled The Cross Center Life writes about this kind of condemnation. Don't buy the lie that cultivating condemnation and wallowing in your shame is somehow pleasing to God. Boy, that hits me right at home. Somehow I'm doing God a favor by wallowing in my shame and saying I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm wrong, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry or that a constant, he goes on, low-grade guilt will somehow promote holiness and spiritual maturity. It's the opposite. God is glorified when we believe with all our hearts that those who trust Christ can never be condemned. We have a problem with not believing practically that God is better than all the allurements of our sin. But repentance really springs out of what we see here taking place in grief. Until we really experience the sorrow of what our sin costs. There's really not enough motivation to repent. Repentance is is hard. Repentance is difficult. It's not fun. So until I get to the place where I really see how bad my sin is, I have no basis for really repenting. Grief really is the fount from which repentance springs. It's the only basis for ultimately living without regret. The difference between a living death and living without regret is in that repentance. Repentance. Perhaps you've met a person, perhaps you've been a person who's overwhelmed by the awfulness of sin and hardly able to function. That's a good place to begin. But it's not the place to end. That's where the brothers failed in this regard. But the gospel was still at work. Maybe you've come to the place where you felt that you couldn't do anything, anything but the one thing you needed to do couldn't just let that grief carry you to the cross. The only place where that grief can take you effectively. Just wallowing in guilt won't resolve it. Wallowing in guilt, I can tell you from personal experience, I wish I couldn't, but I can. I can tell you from personal experience that wallowing in guilt is actually a process by which we try to skirt the gospel. We try to get past the gospel by doing penance on our knees. We're climbing staircases, as Martin Luther did years and years ago, on our knees, doing penance to God. I'm so wrong. I'm so wrong. Okay, it's good if it hurts a bit, because I'm so, so wrong. That's not the gospel. We start with an awareness of the horror of our sin, but we go on to the mercy that God has for us in Christ at the cross. His mercy triumphs over judgment. He wants to pour out His mercy on us through the gospel. He wants to tell us that there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And then, He wants to make us ministers of that same triumphant mercy. Yes, that same mercy to those who hurt you. And you're not gonna make it better by saying, oh, it it wasn't that big a deal. It really didn't matter that much, it didn't hurt me. Notice Joseph never did that in this story. He didn't say, oh guys, it's all right. You won't find that anywhere in the story through the remaining portion of the narrative all the way through chapter 50. You will not find one time that Joseph made light of his experiences of suffering, never. Because they were real. And the suffering you experience is real. We're not asking. God's not saying. Make light of your circumstances and say, you know, it's all right. Sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. It's not the gospel. It did hurt. It does hurt. Joseph turns and weeps. And by the way, this is the first time of many of his interactions with his brothers that follow in which almost every single one of them he cries because it hurt for years and years and years to come. The gospel does not say to you or to me, it's not going to hurt anymore. You're going to be okay. It says, Jesus paid the price. And he joins with you. Unites his suffering with your suffering. So that together, we might proclaim the gospel to people who have no hope. Who look in the face of guilt and darkness, and cannot see a sunrise coming. Because for them, there is no sunrise of hope. Guilty darkness, gospel light. We have the chance to both experience the gospel every day, and the opportunity to minister the gospel, yes, even to those who hurt us as we experience in the life of Joseph in Genesis chapter 42 here in our study today. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we probably have some specific instances that we can think of where we have...